0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know I forgot something. Today's sermon is called Trust in God's Promises. Trust in God's Promises. This is at the core of a life of faith. When you think about being a Christian, what does it mean? If you were to describe it in four words, I think this is a pretty good... A pretty good definition. What is a Christian? Well, it's a person who trusts in God's promises. We know that chief among the promises of God is the promise of salvation to those who believe in Christ, to those who have faith. Romans 5, message from Paul, talks about this. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, And then he continues the rest of chapter 5. But before we do that, let's talk about these words a second. Back in our title, Trust in God's Promises. Before we can march into this discussion, let's talk about what these words mean. What does it mean to trust? Well, the biblical word for trust is the same exact word as the word believe. It's the same exact word as the word have faith. To trust means to put your confidence in. To put your faith, your trust, your hope to put your whole life on something. For those of you who have ever watched Texas Hold'em Poker on ESPN like I used to back in the day, it's called going all in. Going all in. That's what trust is. It's putting yourselves all in. All chips on the table for God. You trust Him. You believe in Him. You put your faith and your confidence in Him. And more more Specifically, in His promises. Well, how do we know what the promises of God are? Well, He reveals them to us in His Word. And certainly, if we were to crack open our Bibles today, I could list a, a sheet of paper, double-sided, 50, 60, 70, I don't even know how many pages, of just promises that God has for His people. And they begin in Genesis. They go all the way through, all the way to Revelation All of God's word offers to you and to me, his beloved children, the people of his hand, the the flock of his pasture, promises. God says, I will do this. I will say this. I will be this for you. You will do this. You will say this. You will be this for me. These promises, these covenants are all throughout the Bible. Today we're going to talk about just a few from Romans chapter 5, but we are talking first and foremost about the one that we started off by, by talking about how we, we have trust, we have hope, we have faith at the very core of our identity as a Christian. Paul knows that we have been justified through faith, and he spends all of chapter 4 talking about this. So in chapter 5, he begins with the word, therefore, having established the fact that this is true, let's move forward. So he's established the fact that we've been justified through faith. This justified through faith its like kind of saved by faith idea. Hopefully it's one that's rather familiar to you all. After all, you are Lutherans, right? You have been saved by grace through faith. A marching cry of Martin Luther and the Reformation. And this is the core foundation of our Christian faith, our Christian walk of life, that we have been saved by faith, grace through faith. And and we would say that this is the most important thing you can possibly know, that Jesus came, he died for you, and, and through faith in him, by the grace of God, you can have eternal life with him. It's the greatest promise ever given to humanity. That's the promise that God gave to you and to me. But is it the only promise God gives? Certainly this is the foundation. If you want to think of a foundation in a building, foundation is really important, but it's not the whole building. Buildings are bigger than just their foundation. You build the rest with bricks and mortar, and that's what the promises of God are. There is a core chief promise, a teaching, a practice of the church that we find here in this idea of being saved by grace through faith, but there's more. But wait, there's more. That sounded like, uh, you know, price is right to you, but wait, there's more. And that's true for us. We have the amazing promise of life eternal. But wait, there's more. (laughs) We have a promise after promise after promise from God. And just here in one chapter of Romans chapter 5, we hear several promises of God. After Paul establishes the therefore statement in chapter 1, where he reminds us of the foundation of our life through faith, he gives us some of the promises of God. Number one, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. This is sort of a a sleepy promise to begin with. If I were going to begin with all the promises of God, I'd begin with something like, you'll never get sick again. You'll have all the money you'll ever need in the whole wide world. But that's not where Paul begins. Where does Paul begin? He says, we're going to start off with this. You are at peace with God. Now, if you are in a room and there's many gifts to be gotten, but there's also a hungry lion in the middle of the room, how many of the promises matter if the lion is really hungry for you? Not many of them. And this is where Paul begins. He's like, there is a lion. There is a mighty and ravenous beast in the midst of your treasures and your promises all around you, and it's God. We often think of God as this tender, gentle, fatherly, caring soul, but he's a warrior too. He's the Lord God, Yahweh of Sabaoth. Yahweh, the commander of the angel armies, the hosts unnumbered, which conquer heaven and earth on the last day. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is vengeful against sin. And so before he goes anywhere, Paul says, you're at peace with this guy, and that's a good thing. Because the opposite of that is not good. You're at war with this God. You're at war with this lion. You're at war. That's not a good place to be. And so he says, first of all, you're at peace. And not just at peace, he's the one who's on your side to fight all the foes who would seek to devour you. That's a very good thing. Not only do you want God not to be angry, you want him on your side. You want him in your corner because he is powerful and mighty. And so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, we have gained access by faith into this grace in the here and now. So through Jesus Christ, we have gained access by that faith, that foundation of faith that we've established. We have access to His grace. Knowing our own shortcoming, knowing our own sinfulness, knowing that we are not worthy of His grace, We've gained access to it nonetheless. The temple curtain has been torn. The holy of holies is open. We have access to him, not in his righteous judgment and indignation, but by his grace. We have access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. It's not just a promise for us on the last day that we'll inherit the grace of God and he'll be merciful to us on that last day when he judges us, Certainly we do have that promise as well. This promise is for the here and now. We now stand in the grace of God. God regards us in a gracious and merciful heart each and every day. And, how's this one? We boast in the hope of the glory of God. How's that for a promise? You as the children of God, you as believers, you as followers of Christ, have the ability and may boast... That seems kind of counterintuitive. Christians are called to be humble, not boasters, but it all matters what the object of the boasting is. If the object of the boasting is that we boast in ourselves and our accomplishments and how smart we are, how hard we work, how well we are regarded by others, how high on the promotional ladder, how often we go to church, then that's the wrong area for our emphasis of boasting. That boasting leads to judgment. But our, the, object, the object of our boasting is not inward, it's outward. It's actually upward, right? It's towards God. We boast in the hope that is ours of the glory of God. And think about that. That's really how God wants us to live our lives. We don't carry on boasting about how great we are and all the accomplishments we do. Instead, we kind of make ourselves low and we say, look how great He is. Look at all the ways He's doing amazing things and I want to tell everybody about it. And so we boast in our God. Then we have another promise. We get to join in the glory of God. We get to join in the glory God has glory. He has established His glory. It's part of who He is by the nature of Him being, I don't know, the creator of heaven and earth, I guess. But we have no glory in and of ourselves. We are as gloryless as you can be. I know that's not a word, but I'm trying to paint a picture. There's nothing glorious in us in and of ourselves. But there is a way in which we can have glory. We and we alone can find glory, and the way we do so is not by elevating ourselves, but rather it's by showing the real lowness and meagerness of our human condition. We find our glory in our sufferings. And we boast in our sufferings because they make us more like Christ. They bring us closer in proximity to Jesus who suffered and died for our sins. And so we find glory and we 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 join in the glory to some extent of God, not by saying, look how much like God I am, but rather by showcasing the fact that, that we suffer and that suffering does something to us. That suffering it promotes in us something new. We and we alone, you've heard me say that before, have the promise of having our suffering matter. Nobody else has that promise. For everyone else, the suffering is suffering for suffering's sake. It's pain for pain's sake. But for we who are in Christ Jesus, our suffering has a purpose, has a meaning, is going somewhere. It matters. Nobody else can have that promise but us. And so I want to talk about that today with you for just a minute. I want to to talk about that, that suffering and, and, and what it's for, what, it, what its purpose is. You may not be greatly suffering today. You might be suffering in many ways today. I don't know. I guarantee you've experienced suffering in your life, though, because to live is to suffer. This is a broken world, and to some degree or some, some fashion, you have experienced hardship, pain, suffering. Have you thought about why? Think about what it means that we suffer in this life and why we do. And in the meantime, I want you to think about this. Suffering has a purpose. Paul talks about that in the epistle lesson. He says, after we, he says, after that promise that we find glory in our suffering, he says, because we know that suffering produces something. It has a benefit for us. It produces perseverance. Perseverance. We often look like this in our lives, in our spiritual lives, where we're ill-equipped to lift the load of the, the problems and the suffering of our lives. We look like we're about to buckle under the weight, and then you know what God does? He puts some more on us. And we have a prayer to God. We have a choice to pray one of two things. We can say, God, take the weight of this suffering away. Or we can pray the prayer that I think Paul is encouraging us to pray. That's, God, I'm not sure what this suffering is about, but I do know that it is purposeful. And the purpose of it, the purpose of suffering, is that it produces something. It produces perseverance. We begin looking like this we're feeble, we're struggling. We're barely making it through the suffering of our daily life. It feels like we're taking one step forward and two steps back. But after we learn to transform our mindset on suffering from being a person who complains to God about the suffering of our life to saying, God, I don't know the purpose of this suffering, but I put my trust in your promises. As soon as we transform that way of thinking, then suffering produces perseverance. Now I want to talk about my favorite topic, movies. And I'll talk about movie montages. And my favorite movie montage, of course, since I was born in the 80s, is from the Rocky movies, okay? The sports training montages in the Rocky movies are awesome, but probably my favorite one is the one from Rocky IV. It's not the best of the Rocky movies. It's, it's a pretty good one, but the training montage I love. Because what it does is it showcases a, a process, a path where... It develops from not being ready to him being ready and prepared. So Rocky has an adversary, right? Ivan Drago, the, the Russian who, um, I won't spoil too much of the movie, but Rocky has a chip on his shoulder and wants to go and fight him. Yeah, we can spoil a movie from 1985 or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you should go watch it anyway. And so Rocky's going, he's got a, a boxing match against Ivan Drago. And Ivan Drago is a machine, uh, and he's surrounded by machines. He's he's an absolute physical freak. He's six foot nine, two hundred and eighty pounds of rock hard, solid muscle. And Rocky's five eleven and you know, one hundred and eighty five pounds or something, and he maybe two hundred. He's a boxer after all. He's fit, but he's not he's not ready for the fight. And he's never going to get physically prepared to fight this hulking mass. But he knows that if he can find it in himself to beat Ivan Drago, not in the physical match, but in the willpower match, that he can win. And so he goes to Russia to train. And Ivan Drago was training basically in a laboratory. He's surrounded by scientists in white lab coats. There's all this high-tech machinery and flashing lights going on all around him. Every piece of workout equipment is a machine, and he's got all these programmed things going on, and they even inject him with steroids into his arm. And he's, he's, you watch him working out, he's just a, he's a physical freak. And <clears throat> by contrast, Rocky is working out. He goes to Siberia. He's in an abandoned barn in the middle of nowhere. No machines, no medicines, no scientist. With him is his brother-in-law, his wife, and his coach. And he, he wants to get away from it all. He wants to be alone so he can focus on one and only one task, and that's being prepared for the fight ahead. And so he knows that he has to suffer, and he does so willingly. He's going to step into that suffering and say, I'm here, and I'm going to do what needs doing. And in that, he, he grows in his perseverance. He, instead of the machines, he picks up logs off the ground. Instead of this high-tech sled thing, he literally pulls an old-fashioned dog sled with his brother-in-law sitting on the back. Instead of lifting weights, he lifts a cart with his brother and his, and his wife and his, uh, and his coach sitting in there. He does all these kind of workouts that aren't really workouts, but just they just cause pain and suffering And in the midst of doing all this, he's growing in his perseverance. And that perseverance begins to build in him this resolve that that kind of dissolves into character. Now he is a person of pain. He knows what it is to suffer for his cause, and he's willing to do so, and he's stepping into it with gritted teeth. There's pain all over his face as he's doing this, but you can see the determination. He's willing to go the distance. And so he lifts that cart and he's doing all these things and he's hollering and screaming, he's getting the job done. And <clears throat> probably the best scene in the montage is at the very end of the montage. You can see that Ivan Drago is going step for step with him. You can see Rocky's lifting logs, Ivan's lifting weights. Rocky's running on the snow, Ivan's running on the track. He's talking with his coach, Ivan's talking with a scientist. Rocky's coach tells him only two words during the whole montage. He looks at him and square in the eye, and he says two words. He says, no pain. There's a lot of pain, trust me. You can see it. If I were doing those things, I'd be like, yeah, there's a lot of pain. (laughs) But for him, there's no pain. He's not allowing pain to dictate. He's not allowing suffering to dictate what he is doing because he knows that suffering and the pain has a purpose. It's going somewhere. It's going to accomplish something. The suffering produces perseverance. The perseverance produces character. And now as a person of pain, as a character, a person of character who can overcome that obstacle by, by sheer determination, he produces hope. The very last scene of the movie montage has them running. Ivan's running on a treadmill. Rocky's running on the snow with a car chasing after him, trying to catch him. He takes off running up a mountainside, and they can't keep up with anymore. And just to show that Ivan Drago can go step for step, they start to elevate the angle of the treadmill. And they're huffing and puffing. You can see both of them are just in some serious pain. It's a battle of the wills. Who will quit and who won't? And Ivan Drago quits. He can't hack it. But does Rocky quit? No, man. Because he's got that character. He knows there's going to be pain and he's ready for it. He's going to step into the suffering and overcome it because he is a person who can do that. And he gets to the top of the mountain and he's just in sheer elation and hope. He knows that he's beaten Drago already and the fight hasn't even begun because there's no way that he could keep up with the sheer tenacity that it required to get up that mountaintop. And so think about the analogy of, of, of Rocky and how it ties into our spiritual life, right? Unfortunately for us, this is a seven-minute movie montage, and the sufferings of our life don't come and go in seven minutes. It could be seven weeks, it could be seven months, seven years, 70 years. We endure sufferings that are sometimes ongoing our whole life, and we wonder why, why, Lord, why is there continued suffering going on and on? But if we can take that suffering and have that mindset, instead of, instead of it transforming ourselves into people who mope and whine and complain about the fact that there's suffering in our life, if we can instead allow that suffering to be converted into perseverance by saying, yeah, there's hardship, there's, there's pain, there's pain in my life, there's pain in someone else in my life's situation that I can step into and help them carry their load of suffering and pain. Then that becomes perseverance. Persevering over time creates a character about you where you're a person who doesn't mope and complain. You're not a quitter. You're not a person who gives up. You're a person who persists. And that character of persistence in the face of suffering leads us to hope. Leads us to hope. Because we know that the purpose that God has for us is a purpose that is eternal and long lasting, a purpose for us which continues to go on forever. We remember it's not our power that gives us hope, though. It's not our abilities, it's not our willpower or stick to that gives us the hope for eternal life. It's not our own ability to trust and believe in God that gives us that hope. Instead, it's our hope in God. It's our trust in Him to fulfill the promises that He has for us. That gives us the power to face each new struggle with our head held high. Because we know that each coming struggle simply produces in us perseverance, and that that perseverance produces character, and that character does not leave us hope without hope, because our hope in God is It continues to strengthen us and to give us a new hope, and that hope does not put us to shame. The reason the hope does not put us to shame is because it is a hope of a God who loves us, who truly cares for us, who sees us in the midst of our suffering and does not have an an, an unsympathetic viewpoint to us, but who rather sees us and wants to help us to grow. We know that God is a God who loves us because He poured out into our hearts the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And and we know that God demonstrates His love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, while we were unworthy, while we were without power, while we seemed in the moments of our hopelessness and brokenness, that's precisely when Christ came to die for us. And His death transformed our lives. His life transformed our lives. And now that suffering that we come up against, we can't help but see it through the window of His suffering and death. And the suffering and death of Christ points us to one thing and one thing only, a reminder that God loves us. And that gives us hope to trust in Him more and more each day, to rely on His promises to always be with us, to love us, to never forsake us, but to be with us in the midst of our trials and our struggles. And to that, all God's people can say, amen. At this time, I'll invite you to stand. Let's pray real quickly. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us your hope, the hope which comes from you. Lord, help us to stand firm in the face of sufferings which often we do not fully understand but rather help us to trust in you to put our sure and certain confidence that you will come through for us as you have done each and every time. We pray this all in Jesus' holy and precious name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.